Well, we're continuing our series this morning called Faith Forward, and uh, I'm losing my voice, so I will be hydrating myself often. There will be dramatic pauses that I make that are for me to take little sips of water. Uh, please forgive me for that. I'll make it as dramatic as is humanly possible. But the idea behind this series, Faith Forward, is that for us, when we decided to follow after Jesus, there was a faith that was born inside of us. There was faith that was awakened to say, Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior, that you're God, and that you came, that you died on the cross for my sins, that now I'm forgiven, I have your righteousness now, is the righteousness that I have. I'm no longer marked and defined by sin. I'm no longer uh, a slave to sin, but I'm someone who's been set free by Jesus. And this faith begins to change our life. It begins to change the way that we live, our hopes for the future, uh, for the plans and the purposes of God inside of every one of our hearts. And we just really grow a lot. We're passionate about Jesus and his cause. We're passionate about becoming more like him. And then what happens is, uh, for most of us, there begins to be kind of a plateau stage. of The passion starts to wane a little bit. And... Uh, Maybe you start compromising on some of the things that you dedicated yourself or that God had called you out of. You start returning to some of those things. Your faith for God's plans and purposes for you or what he can do in your life might start to, to fade a little bit. Your passion and commitment to obedience to him can start to slip. And that's a natural part of it. Um, it's like anything that we do in life. If you've ever decided that you're going to buy the gym membership, like I talked about last week, you were filled with faith and hope and excitement and passion for about a week, and then you were sore and tired and you wanted to sleep in. And it took a deliberate decision and deliberate disciplines that you built into your life to be able to continue to move into the vision that you had for losing weight, getting a six-pack, whatever it might be. Well, following after Jesus and having a faith that continues to move forward also requires that we develop some deliberate disciplines and make some deliberate decisions inside of our life. And one of the ones that has most radically shaped my faith and has most stirred up a passion in my heart for Jesus is to make the decision and develop the discipline to become a worshiper of Jesus. When you hear the word worship, it probably brings some different things to mind based on your background. Uh, I grew up in a little Methodist church out in the country, so when I thought of worship, it was, uh, I was an acolyte. So like, my idea of worship was you wait for the organ to go, and then I come down in my white robe with my fire and hope I don't burn the place down or the other guy's robe set that on fire. And then there'd be some hymns, and I knew, okay, there's a, like, after we stand, and then we sit, and then there's another hymn, the sand sit, and then I go get the fire, and I put it out, I extinguish the light of God, or whatever I'm supposed to do, which always seemed really weird, and then I took it back out. Uh, maybe you think of worship, it's singing hymns. Maybe you think of worship, and it's, you know, modern music. Maybe it's electronic dance music type of things. Maybe you grew up uh, with no uh, faith in your house, and there was nothing that you thought of as being worship. But every single one of us, when we think about worship, something comes to our mind, and we have to come to this place where we really begin to learn and recognize what it is that Jesus has called us to be as worshipers. What is worship? What is the role of worship? How do we worship? And um, one of the, worship itself is defined as an attribute. Um, actually, let me back up. It comes back from this English word called worth-ship, and so what it means is that we give worth to something. Uh, like a $100 bill, it's just a piece of paper. Like that's all it honestly is. There's no worth to it, but we have ascribed some value and some worth to it. We've given it worth and value. So now you want that $100 bill that's really just a piece of paper without value. And that's what worship is. It's anytime we ascribe worth and value to something. And it's very important to our faith. Is If we want to continue to grow in our faith, we have to be, learn to be people who attribute value to Jesus. It's like the core of who we are. 
is one of the cornerstones of our faith is that we learn to attribute more value and more worth to Jesus and who he is. And in fact, we're not even able to really take hold of the gift that God has given us if we aren't those who worship in spirit and in truth. And that comes directly from John chapter 4, which is what we're going to be taking a look at today. I'm going to show you two verses in it before we go through it, uh, because I think they're two verses that people don't often put together. John, 4, chap- John chapter 4, verse 10 says, Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift that God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. Now, we, most of you probably know that's from the story of the, the woman at the well that Jesus encounters. We all think of this as, you know, Jesus wants to give us eternal life. He wants to give us salvation. But then at the end of the story, in verse 23, it ends with this. But the time is coming, and indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way. A lot of times when people read the story of the woman at the well, it seems like there's this story about how Jesus wants to come and to save a woman from her sins and give her eternal life. And then there's just this random verse at the end where Jesus says, hey, now that I've saved you, I'm just going to give you this little extra tidbit you want to you know, store away, is that I'm also looking for worshipers in spirit and in truth. But in fact, these two verses are linked. I mean, this is the whole story, is that in order for God to give you the gift that he wants to, you have to become someone who is a worshiper in spirit and in truth. If you aren't a worshiper in spirit and in truth, then you will never be able to position yourself to receive from God the gift that he wants to give you. So as we begin to go through the story, keep the end in mind. Is that what Jesus is doing is he's taking this woman that he meets and he's wanting to lead her into the gift of eternal life that he has for her but before she can do that, she has to become someone who's a worshiper in spirit and truth. So we go back to verse, chap- verse 3 in chapter 4. Jesus is just getting done doing some big meetings. And uh, it says, So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. And eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was tired from the long walk, and he sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And this woman isn't mad at Jesus. She's not like, like, hey, get your own drink. Like, I'm not going to do that for you. But what's happening is she's amazed by the fact that, this, that Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, is coming to her and he's even engaging her and talking to her at all. See, at the time, the Samaritans were a despised people. They were viewed as people who were unclean by their nature because the, the nation of Israel had split. There was the northern part, and then there was the southern part. The northern nation ended up being conquered, and a lot of people were exiled out. A lot of other people that weren't Jewish were brought in, ended up marrying, producing children, and the people that were um, the result of a Jew marrying someone that wasn't Jewish were the Samaritans, and they were considered a dirty half-breed that was hated and I mean, just completely despised by all of the Jews. And so Jesus is coming to this woman, who Jesus, being a rabbi, he is supposed to hate her. He's supposed to not engage her in any way, shape, or form. If he does speak to her, it's supposed to be to hurl insults on her, tell her that she's a dirty sinner, that she's an abomination before God, things like that. That's what she's expecting. Like, imagine she's going to the well, it's noontime, and she's like, gotta go get my water, and she's like, oh, great. Like, 
there happens to be a Jewish rabbi sitting there at the well who's going to completely ignore me at best, or he's going to make fun of me and ridicule me and dehumanize me. So she goes up there, but instead Jesus asks her for a drink of water. This isn't what she expected. That's why she's like, why, why are you asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water? You're not supposed to do this. You're breaking all of your rules. That doesn't make sense to me. And we have to put ourselves in the place of this woman. Anytime we come to these parables and anytime the actual stories of Jesus, we have to, to understand what the story is. We have to see ourselves in that story. And in this story, we aren't Jesus. We're the Samaritan woman. A lot of times, we have this understanding of God as being pure. And he's holy. He's just. He's unlike us. And that is completely, absolutely true. But a lot of times we think that this God who's so holy, so just, and so pure could have nothing to do with us. This God, he wants to stay far away from me. If he's God, he knows who I am. He knows what I've done. He knows how far I am from him, how unlike him I am. But even in that state of where we think God should have nothing to do with us because of who we are, because of what we've done, because of what culture might say about us, Jesus approaches us. And when he approaches us, he doesn't remain silent. He doesn't hurl insults on us. He doesn't tell us how bad we are. He doesn't condemn us or shame us. He comes to engage us, to lead us in a process so that we can receive the gift that he has for us. So this morning, put yourself in that place. The holy God's approaching you. He's engaging you. And then it says, Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer uh, better water than what he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And what she's saying to Jesus is, this gift of God, this thing that I really need, what makes you think that you're the one who's able to do that for me? What makes you think that you're able to give me what I need? When we put ourselves in that place, what is it that we're always needing? What are we focused on all the time? Like, we're always focused on our jobs. And maybe that's the thing that you need. Is, or you need money. You, need a, you have to have money to be able to live, to buy food, have a place to live. Uh, you, know, like you need money to be able to operate in our society today. So we say, this is what I need. I need money. I need money for, a for my 401k because someday I'm going to retire. Maybe it's that I need a college degree so that I can get the job that I want, so I can get the money, so I can eat food. There are these things that we think we need, and we look to something to provide them for us. And that's what this woman is doing, saying, Jesus, how are you going to provide me with money? Jesus, how are you going to provide me with kids that listen to me and obey me? Jesus, how are you going to do these different things? Like, you don't have the ability to do that because you don't even have a rope. You don't even have a bucket. Like, Jesus, are you going to send me the paycheck in the mail? Like, when I'm waiting for the check from God, like, how do I sign that one? How do I deposit the check from God? And then she even says, Jesus, do you even think that you're able to provide this for me? When, she, when she's going to this well that Jacob had dug for her, this is a well that generations ago, Jacob, her forefather, had dug. And it was a well that had stood through the generations and had become a constant source of provision for his family that came after him, where they can go there and they can draw this water out of it. And she's saying, Jesus, you don't have the ability. Like, you're not, I mean, Jacob's already provided for me the thing that I need. Do you think that you're better than Jacob? Do you think you're a better provider for me than Jacob? We do that with Jesus. Jesus, do you think that you're a better provider for me than my job? 
I, I know what I need, and that's why I put money in my 401k, $3, every single two-week pay period. Because someday I'm going to retire. In 400 years, I'm going to have enough money to retire. And we're just saying, like, Jesus, do you think that you're a better provider for me than the University of Michigan paycheck? Or do you think that you're a better provider for me than the mutual funds that I've been invested in? Like, Jesus, you don't have the ability to give me what it is that I really need. That's what we're doing. And then it continues on like this. It says, Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I will give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Jesus is getting more clear now on what it is that he's bringing. And then it says, Please, sir, the woman said, Give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. What Jesus is saying is that I want to give you the gift of eternal life. Like, that's what I'm here to give you. That gift I'm talking about, it's eternal life. And when you drink of this gift, you're never going to have any thirst in your life ever again. The woman, though, she doesn't understand what it is that Jesus is talking about. She still thinks that he's talking about physical water. And so she says, yes, like, I'm all in on this now. Give me the water, that, like this magic water that will make it so that I never have to keep coming here to this well and continually drawing out of it. She's completely missing the point of what it is that Jesus is saying. But that's also something that we can relate to because we continually miss the point on what it is that Jesus is really wanting to give us and what it is that he's really trying to do inside of our hearts. And it goes on and it says, uh, Jesus says, go and get your husband. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. And Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband for you've had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Like, ouch, Jesus. Like, who are you to judge Jesus? And does that seem kind of harsh? Like, this woman, she's just going to get some water. Like, she just wants to get a cup of water. And this Jewish rabbi is sitting here beating her up about the fact that she's had five marriages and now is living with some guy. It's like, can I just get my water? Like, please? That's all I wanted. I don't need this lecture. I don't need you to do all this stuff. But what we need to understand is what Jesus is doing is not trying to shame her. He's not trying to condemn her about this. But he's trying to lead her through the process of her having to come to face to face with the reality of her sin and recognize why it is that she's been living in sin and recognize what the gift of God really is. There's something that's really telling about this. Is when she says, hey, give me this water because then I won't ever have to keep coming back to this well and pulling it up. I won't have to do that again. Do you think that maybe she's been treating relationships like the well? Where she keeps coming to the well of marriage and keeps pulling it up again and again. Because what she's doing is she's become a worshiper of relationships. The spiritual thirst that she has inside of her, the spiritual need and desire for freedom, for emotional and body healing, the need that she has for love and acceptance, the need that she has for forgiveness of her sins, the need that she has for identity, salvation, all of these spiritual needs that this woman has, she's been trying to meet them in a physical way. And that's what our, like most of our sins come down to the fact that we have a spiritual need inside of our hearts. It's a very real need for love, for acceptance, for worth, for purpose, identity, all of those things. 
But instead of going to Jesus, who's the one that has the ability to meet these needs for us, who has the ability to give us the spiritual things that will satisfy our desires so that we don't thirst anymore, we keep coming to physical things, and we're trying to satisfy a spiritual desire was a physical thing. So she, she's looking to a marriage. She's worshiping marriage, thinking that the marriage is going to make her complete and solve all of her problems. For all of those of you who are married, you're like, what on earth? Like, that is not what happens in marriage at all. And it's what she found out. So the first marriage ends. And what does she do? She goes back to the well again. She gets the bucket out, and she draws back up, and she gets herself into another relationship. Maybe this relationship's going to satisfy my desires. Maybe this relationship will give me the love and the acceptance and the identity and the worth, all of the other things that I need. She finds out that doesn't do it, goes back to the well again, and again, and again, and again, and she just keeps coming back to the well, trying to draw the same thing out of it, hoping that somehow that's going to satisfy her desire when it never has before. Why was she so bad at marriage? Because she was looking to marriage to provide her with something that only Jesus can provide her with. One of the worst things that you can do, for all of you married people, people thinking about getting married, hoping to be married, is to worship your spouse. Because your spouse does not meet your spiritual needs. They cannot do that. You can ask my wife, I am a terrible, terrible Jesus. I cannot do the things for her that only Jesus can do for her. And if she was looking to me to do that, our marriage would have been over before it even started. Every one of us, we have a spiritual need for Jesus that's built into us. We have a need for living water. We have a need for the gift that God gives us. But the natural way we go about that is we keep trying to come to things like relationships. We come to the well, and we're drawing up something that can never satisfy, and we take the drink, and we're still thirsty, so we try another relationship. We're looking for it in our careers. We think maybe this job or this career path is going to make me feel significant or value, and so we reach down into the well, and we're trying to find significance. We're trying to find worth. We're trying to find identity in it, and we never find it, and so we change careers, or we go to a different job place, whatever it might be. Maybe it's, you're trying to build, maybe it's a pride thing. Maybe it's a money thing. If I just had a little bit more money, then that desire would be satisfied. So I keep coming back to the well. And I pull up money and I drink of it and I'm still thirsty and I need more. And we just keep doing this over and over and over again. You see, the reason this woman was living in sin, the reason why she was led to this was because she was trying to satisfy the spiritual thirst that she has for Jesus in a physical way that could never, ever meet what she needs. And when she did that, she became someone who was a worshiper of relationships. We're worshipers of money. We're worshipers of career. We're worshipers of living our sports dreams through our children. There's all of these different things that we attribute worth and value to, all these different things that we think are going to bring us what we need. Like every four years, you know, we get all excited. We think that some politician is going to solve all of our problems. And so we go and we pull up the water again and again. We've seen people do this for hundreds of years before us, and never once has it satisfied a single person. But maybe this time it'll satisfy us because we worship our politicians, we worship the political process. And then it continues... Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim that it's here at Mount Gerizim 
where our ancestors worshipped. Now, this might seem like, is she deflecting? Is she trying to change the subject because Jesus is, is doing this to her? No, I don't think that's what's happening. I think what's happening is that she recognizes that she's in the presence who knows something about God. And so she wants to ask questions. She wants to better understand God. She wants to worship Jesus. She wants to know God intimately and closely, but she doesn't know how to do that. See, at the time, there's two different temples. Uh, the two nations hated each other so much after the split that there was a temple in the north and there was the temple in the south, and they each claimed that that was the only temple that was right, it was the only temple they could worship at, and it was only the true worshipers were worshiping at their temple. Now, not to say we never do anything like that. Like, you'll never find a church that's like, it has to be hymns only, or it has to be like bass drops only, or drums summon the Holy Spirit, or drums summon the demons, or, you know, it's got to be on Saturday that we meet, it's got to be on Sunday that we meet. Worship should be 10 minutes, worship should be an hour. Like, we should light candles, we should sit, stand, kneel. Like, we have all of these different things. We say, these other people, they're not really worshiping. If they only worshiped like me, then they would be right, and then they could be as discontent as I am. So Jesus, here's her question of, I want to know how to worship. What's the right way that I'm supposed to worship? Because clearly I've been doing it wrong. I've been, I've been worshiping at the altar of relationships. So, so God, how is it that I'm really supposed to worship God? And Jesus replies, he says, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming. It will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. That means Saturdays or Sundays, with candles, without candles, with or without drums. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes from the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus is saying all these questions that you're asking, those aren't the important ones. It's not about where you worship. What I'm looking for is people who will worship in spirit and in truth. You see, it's not about the location. It's not about the style. It's not about your preferences. It's about the heart of worship. And at the heart of worship, it's that we have to be those who are worshiping Jesus in spirit and in truth. So Jesus replies, oh, I read that part. And the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming and one who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. That's how he ends it. He starts out by approaching this woman who's dirty, who's sinful, who isn't deserving of God in his presence. But he engages her. He offers her the gift that God alone can give. He offers her the gift of eternal life. And he helps her see that the only way she can ever receive the gift that God has to give us, living in his righteousness, living in intimacy with him, living knowing him, living with the freedom that he alone can give us, means that we have to learn to worship him in spirit and truth. And the way that we awaken to spirit and truth working is the spiritual understanding that the truth is that Jesus is the Messiah. 
that Jesus is the Savior, that Jesus is God who took on human flesh and he came and he lived amongst us and he didn't despise us for our sins, he didn't shame us, he didn't condemn us in our sins, but he came to us because he loved us. He came to us with acceptance. He came to us in humility. He came to us to offer us eternal life. He came to us to go to the cross, to die for us, so that every sin that separated us from him would be removed, so that we could receive the identity of sons and daughters adopted into his own family. We, so we can know the significance and the purpose and the plans of God, so we can know what it's like to live with the love of God inside of us, with that being the defining reality of our life. See, everything that we're looking for, every spiritual need in our hearts is provided for us in Jesus and in Jesus alone. But for us to be able to accept the gift that he has for us, we have to learn to worship him in spirit and truth. The spiritual awakening to Jesus being supreme over all things. I used to worship relationships when I really needed Jesus. I was looking to them for acceptance. I was looking to them for identity. I was looking to them for love. But I found that Jesus was the only one who could give that to me. I was looking to a career to give me significance. I was looking to a paycheck to be my provision. I was looking to pleasure to try to give some sort of sense of anything in my life. And what I found out was that I was worshiping something else instead of Jesus. And it just kept leading me to ruin. And it kept leading me to destruction. But even when I was doing that, even when I had these other idols that I was pursuing and I was following after instead of Jesus, he was still so good and he was so loving and he was so gracious that he came to me, he revealed himself to me. He didn't despise me for my sin, but he atoned for it and invited me into his family. That's where spirit and truth worship starts, is that realization of that's who Jesus is. That's the gift that God offers us. That's the thing that we really need that nothing else could provide for us. And now a part of the way we enter into that spirit and truth worship is we abandon all of the other things we had been pursuing and looking for to provide for us the things that only Jesus could provide for us. And until we get that revelation of that being who Jesus is, of how supremely worthy he is, until he becomes the one that we come to the, and we say that you have more worth more value than anything else in all of this world. You alone are the one I'm going to seek after. You alone are the one that I need. Until we come to that place where we're spirit and truth worshipers, we'll never be able to receive the gift of God because you'll always be looking to something else to be the provision that Jesus alone can be. It's when you come to that place of recognizing the supremacy of Jesus that you abandon every other pursuit and you stop looking to these false idols like relationships and money and pleasure and instead you come fully after Jesus and when you do that you receive living water you don't have to go to the well anymore where you're drawing it up yourself it says that there's a spring inside of you that the living water wells up inside of you it becomes a source that God dwells inside of you and his life comes out of you you don't have to strive for it anymore you don't have to try to make it for yourself you don't have to keep pulling from the well it just wells up out of you that's the gift that God has to give you and to receive it 
we become spirit and truth worshipers. And for us, I think a lot of times we identify as the woman. We've known about Jesus. We've had some conversations with him. But we haven't come to that place where we recognize that he's really the Messiah, that he's really the Savior, that he's the one that is everything that we could ever need. Jesus said that what he's looking for right here on this earth is spirit and truth worshipers. He says the time is coming, actually it's here now, when that's what God's going to seek. And one of the best pictures that we get of what worship is, I love this, is from the throne room of heaven itself. You want to know what worship looks like, what spirit and truth worship is? Look to what's happening in heaven right now. And this is what it says. John, who wrote this book, he also wrote uh, Revelation, and it says, in Revelation 5, 11 through 14, this is a vision that he has of the throne of heaven. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the voices of many angels, numbering thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. And they're saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessings and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. That picture that we get of what spirit and truth worship is, it's not just for heaven, it's not just for the throne room of God, it's for us. It's for now, it's for today, it's for here, it's for you, and it's for me. This is what Jesus is looking for on the face of the earth spirit and truth worshipers. Do you see what all the angelic beings and those who have gone before us and now fully know Jesus, you know what they recognize? That he is the Messiah. And they come before him and they say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. You're so worthy, Jesus. Because when I was lost in my sin, when I was so undeserving, you gave your life for me. You died for me so that I could receive life, so that I could be here in your very throne room, so I could receive all the blessings, all the gifts that you have. You see, when you're in the presence of God, what you start to recognize like never before is how good God is and how messed up you are. And how messed up you are shouldn't make you feel condemned and shameful how messed up you are should make you just overflow with love and gratitude that Jesus would still choose to love you and die for you when you were that messed up and that he would elevate you to the status of a son or of a daughter, that he would remove that bondage of sin from you. All of them before the throne, they have that perfect revelation of how good God is and like they were. And what's their response? They sing. They're singing their songs. In heaven, every time we get a picture of heaven, it's this constant singing, constant songs of praise and adoration. I don't think we have a choice in heaven. I don't think there's anything we can do but worship Jesus when we come into his presence like that. And then it says that the response to this 
spirit and truth worship. The revelation of who Jesus is and how worthy he is. It says it leads them. They just fall before his throne. They're casting their crowns down before him. It's this physical expression. In heaven, it's not that they're all just standing there. Worthy is the lamb. There's a physical action that accompanies it. Jesus, you're so worthy because of who you are, because of what you've done for me. You gave your life for me, and I didn't deserve it. And you gave me everything I could ever need. You gave me the gift of God, this life that's just bubbling out of me, this pouring out of me, everything else I was pursuing after. I was looking for that. I never could do that, but you came, and you did that for me. Now, because of that, I worship you. I recognize there's no one else who's like you. You have more value. You have more worth than anything else in all of creation. I'm going to spend the rest of my life worshiping you in spirit and in truth. That's what heaven looks like. And Jesus says that that's what he's looking for right now. People who will worship him in spirit and truth. The way that we move on in our faith, the way our faith moves forward so that we can take hold of everything that God has for us. We have to be those who worship in spirit and truth. We have to make that decision of that's who I'm going to become. I'm going to develop this discipline in my life. I'm going to stop attributing so much worth to everything else. I'm going to spend the rest of my life learning to worship Jesus. I'm going to dethrone these other idols and I'm going to worship at the feet of Jesus. Will you stand with me this morning? You know, maybe you've spent a lot of time in churches. Maybe you've spent a lot of time learning about Jesus. It's possible to be like the Samaritan woman at the well who's talking to Jesus face to face and he's trying to do so. He says, I want to give you eternal life. I want to give you life. Living water is bubbling up out of you and you're still waiting for the Messiah because your Messiah has become something else. Your Savior has become the relationship, the career, the job, whatever it might be, the money, greed, the self-importance, the acceptance, something that's really become your Messiah that you're looking to to save you from the place that you're at now, to satisfy the thirst that you have. This morning, Jesus is here. John also wrote, Jesus, as he's writing this letter to the different churches, he says, I'm the one that walks in your midst. That when we gather like this, as more two or three or more are gathered, there I am in the midst of you. There's an amplification of his presence when we turn our attention corporately on Jesus. When we gather like this, Jesus is here. And maybe he's come to the well this morning that you've been sitting at. Maybe he's come to the well that day after day you've been drawing out of. And today he says, I want to give you the gift of God. Today I want to give you living water so that you'll never be thirsty again. Maybe this morning he's revealing the sin that's been in your life. The thing you've been looking to, that well you've been drawing out of. The way you've been trying to satisfy a spiritual desire 
was something physical that could never meet it. This morning, he's not here to condemn you. He's not here to shame you. He's here to tell you, I'm the Messiah. And I want you to become a spirit and truth worshiper. I want you to seek after me because I'm the one who can satisfy that thirst. Jesus, over every heart in this room, I pray that you would be magnified. Jesus, over every heart in this room, God, would there be repentance inside of us that we would turn from our sin, that we would turn from all the false idols and the empty wells that we keep trying to draw out of. And Jesus, that we would turn fully to you. That Jesus, that we would come to you denying everything else and saying that you are supreme, that you are Lord, that I submit my life to you. I become obedient to you. Jesus, give me the gift of God. Fill me with living water. Put a faith inside of my heart that grows and produces fruit. Jesus, in you would I find my love. In you would I find acceptance. Jesus, in you would I find freedom. In you would I find contentment and joy and peace. Jesus, would you give me all of the things that only you can give me? And we turn back from all of the other things, all of those empty wells, all of those sinful desires that we've been pursuing. Jesus, forgive us. This morning... We join with all of heaven. We join with all of the angelic beings. We join with all of the elders and all of those who have gone before us who have the pure and perfect revelation of you as the Messiah. And we worship you. Blessed assurance Jesus is mine Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, air of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I am my Savior, I'm happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with His good. in his love lost in your love this is my story this is my song praising my Savior all the day long this is my
from Jesus. I was a slave to sin. I was so undeserving. Yet Jesus came and he gave me living water. He gave me new life because I had a spirit and truth awakening to how worthy he is of our worship. More than anything, what I want for us as a church to be a people who worship in spirit and truth and we're going to go after it we're going to figure out how to live that out because the gift of God and who Jesus is is just so worth it I'm going to call my prayer partners forward they're going to be in the front and the outside here if there's anything that we can pray with you about if there's anything that's on your heart uh, we would love to pray with you. We see Jesus do miracles every single week in response to the prayers of his people. He is such a good father to us. I also encourage you to be here tonight. tonight. I mean, this morning we were talking about that awakening to who Jesus is, him being worthy of our worship. But tonight we're going to work on a little bit more of the how is it that we worship in spirit and truth and through what scripture has revealed to us. So come, learn with us. Let's grow together as a church in worship and what it is that he's called us to do. And let me tell you, there's nothing like the freedom and the joy that you experience when you just pour your heart out to Jesus. So be here at 7 tonight. It's going to be awesome. Um, come let us pray with you. Go drink some coffee, meet some friends, and we'll see you back here tonight. God bless. Oh, yeah.